Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Well, earlier we spoke with Lex Kursemacher, Senior Vice President of the Americas Region and President and Chief Executive Officer of Volver Cars of North America to talk about the new XC60, their new plant in Charleston, and electric vehicles. We kicked things off by asking Lex how Volvo has managed to increase both the price point of cars as well as the volume. Take a listen. I think it, it's fair to say that we are in a turnaround in the United States. We have been out of sight, out of mind. Now, with entering the market with absolute fabulous products, we are able to and grow because we have the right products and also increase our price steps because the, the products are very competitive compared, to, uh, compared to, to, to the rest of the market. So it's a little bit of a rare situation, low volume start, great products, and by that we can combine those factors. I wonder if you could just tell people a little bit about Volvo, because your parent company, obviously based in China, Geely uh, Automotive, the largest, one of the largest manufacturers of automobiles in the world. Describe the split between the United States and China as far as your markets go, volume and so on. I think what you see in, uh, in, the, in, in China happening now is that their, their, their volume prediction for 2007, the total market, is 27 million cars, whereas in, in the United States, as you know, we are operating between 16 and 17. It's, it's only two years ago, probably one and a half year ago, if I remember well, that they passed the U.S. on the 16 million borderline. So what we see in, in China is extremely rapid growth. Uh, how concerned are you about the rebound in commodity prices, steel in particular, uh, as China does stabilize their growth, uh, and how expensive it is becoming to manufacture your cars? Uh, no, at, at the moment, I am not so worried at all. I think uh, it, 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 at the end, we are, we are working in a, in, a, in a free world with free economy, and at, at the end, we, we, will, we will resolve it. But of course, I mean, steel production is, is, is a generic issue, but... It's, it's not our biggest concern for the moment. So what's your biggest concern? Um, my biggest concerns here in the United States is to secure sustainable growth. I mean, we, we want to go as soon as possible to a 1% market share. That's exactly where we were in 2004. That's what our retailers uh, are, are, are aiming for. They have invested accordingly. And we, we, Volvo as such is on a, on a, on a great path. So. My major concern is, is to get sufficient cars to the United States to enable that growth. Can you tell us what volumes you're doing in the United States currently and what your goals are? Um, at the moment, we are operating around 90,000, units, and that's, I would like to end up somewhere between in the United States, uh, between 90 and 95,000 units. And that's, that's based on supply. It's not necessarily based on demand, because demand is higher, especially on the XC90. So just tell us about the new plant in Charleston, South Carolina. Um, we decided about two years, two and a half years ago, to build a plant in South Carolina. We wanted to be in the United States. This is, this is, we have been in the U.S. for more than 60 years. This is more or less our second home market. Um, and we, we took a deliberate choice to be in the United States already two years ago. 
for exactly the reasons I said. This is our home market. This is where our customers are since long. And we have faced very loyal retailers. So we wanted to give a very clear signal. United States, it is. How concerned are you about pushing into the U.S. at a time when auto sales numbers are coming down and there is concern about deteriorating resale values of cars? Uh, that is an issue. And I think what we, what we face generally is that we all want to get to the 16 and a half, 17 million units in the U.S., and that, that drives incentives, and, that, and that's not necessarily sustainable. In respect of the factory in South Carolina, it will be a global factory. We will produce S60 on the new, based on the new platform, same as the XC60, and we will also export S60s to the rest of the world. So we're not only dependent on the U.S. market. Although isn't labor more expensive here? Uh, it is, but at the end, you know, it, it's, it, it's about you produce where you sell. And we have a global manufacturing footprint. That's why it's so important to stress that it's not only about the U.S. We are a global company. We produce cars in Europe, we produce cars in China, and depending on the demand and the model, we distribute them all over the world. And that's one of the reasons why I'm very concerned about the adjustable tax discussions here in the United States, because that is... That's not in line with free trade. That's not in line with what we face in the automotive industry, a, a very global footprint. The Swedish government has made it a policy in order to eliminate the use of fossil fuels, particularly in automobiles. What kind of hybrid or electric automobiles can we expect to see from Volvo? Uh, we took in 2008 the deliberate choice to abandon five cylinders and six cylinders and to focus on very fuel-efficient four-cylinder four turbo engines combined with electrification. So we are totally on track with whatever demand any government wherever in the world is, is putting on, on, on environment. We strongly believe in electrification. We will launch our first full electrical car in 2019. And those markets where electrification does not bite yet, we have extremely fuel-efficient engines in all our car ranges. So I feel very comfortable with actually any demand. What about self-driving cars? I know that Volvo had been making a big push, pulled back after some high-profile accidents. Uh, where is this now? Um, autonomous drive is an integrated part of our vision. We have a vision that by 2020, nobody should be killed or heavily injured in a Volvo. And that's quite a statement. And with passive safety and active safety alone, we do not manage to reach that statement because we know that 90% of the accident is caused by distraction of the driver. There is only one tool which can resolve that, and that is autonomous drive. So we continue to, to roll out very aggressively our development plan. And, and, and Uber, you mentioned it, is, is one partner. We see one accident. That, hasn't, that doesn't hold us back. It, it, it's, it's a revolution, so it will be a somewhat bumpy road, and there are, you know, there, there are sometimes some obstacles. That was Lex Kersemacher, Senior Vice President of the Americas Region and President and Chief Executive Officer of Volvo Cars of North America. He was talking about the new X60, their new plant in Charleston, electric vehicles, as well as breaking into a U.S. market or expanding a presence in a U.S. market uh, that currently has a couple of road uh, speed bumps just based on the loan deterioration uh, as well as lower resale values of cars.
many of the automobile companies here say that they are leading the charge when it comes to automated driving systems and the latest technology inside the cabin. Maybe not. Sam Abulzamid is a senior analyst for mobility for Navigant Research. He's based in Detroit, but luckily he's here with us today. Sam, thanks very much for being with us. And you, uh, okay, you give away the, the, the answer here. I keep thinking, you know, maybe it's Ford or GM or maybe Mercedes. Somebody's got this great, you know, in-cabin technology. You're saying, uh-uh, that's not the group you need to be paying, paying attention to. Well, uh, what we did was we took a look at a lot, uh, all of the, the major companies that are developing automated driving systems and took a, a holistic look at who is best positioned to actually succeed in commercializing the technology. Not just the core technologies of, of a self-driving car, but who can actually make a business out of it. And when we did that and scored, com scored these companies on 10 different criteria for strategy and execution, we came out with several of the, the major automakers as the leaders in the space overall. Uh, so, um, Ford and GM came out on top, uh, Ford just slightly ahead of General Motors, followed by Renault, Nissan Alliance, and then Daimler. And um, Waymo, the Google self-driving car spinoff, uh, came in seventh overall. Uh, we scored them highest for vision and for technology, but they have no manufacturing capability. And you know, they're, they're talking to OEMs about partnering to produce cars for them, so they can install their, their platform on and, and developing the services, but right now they don't have that piece. And some of the other companies that uh, have obviously gotten a lot of media attention, like Tesla and Uber, uh, they actually came quite a bit further down in the rankings uh, based on factors, uh, in Tesla's case, uh, poor quality and reliability of the cars they build today. And um, Uber, um, their technology just doesn't actually seem to work all that well. And, their company as, as a business doesn't seem all that sustainable. Well, Sam, you know, I have to bring this back to recent market action where all of a sudden you saw Tesla's market cap surpassed GM's, mm -hmm. uh, which was a surprising landmark to a lot of people. If Tesla is in seventh place or way down there, or I think even uh, Tesla lower. Tesla is 12th. 12th place, sorry. 12th place when it comes to their ability to commercialize uh, self-driving technology. What does that mean about current valuations? Uh, well, I'm not a stock market analyst or financial analyst. I, I'm a technology analyst uh, and look at the, the business side of it. But um, frankly, you know, it's it's a mystery to me how the, how they have such a valuation. I mean, I I, I hear you know uh, people investors talking about they're talking about their the company's future potential. But frankly, they haven't really demonstrated that they necessarily have a long-term future as a large-scale automaker. Uh, building cars at small scale. They haven't done a particularly good job at product quality and reliability. Um, they certainly haven't been profitable. And uh, as, as they scale up to larger, you know, higher volume vehicles at lower price points, uh, somewhat uh, counterintuitively, customers that buy mainstream cars in the $30,000, $35,000 price point are actually much, have much higher expectations of quality and reliability than customers buying premium cars. Those affluent customers that buy $100,000 and up cars often have more than one vehicle, and they're not necessarily reliant on a specific vehicle to be running every day. People that, you know, company, customers that buy Toyota Camrys and Honda Accords don't buy them because they're exciting or sexy. They buy them because they know they're going to get in that car every morning, 
turn the key, press the start button, it's going to be, it's going to fire up and take them to work, to school, wherever they need to go. And if they need service, it's going to be handled promptly, something that Tesla has not demonstrated the capability to do so far. And if they can't execute properly on launching the Model 3, they could be in serious trouble. I got to say, you know, when you said press the start button, uh, that just took me all the way back to the 1960s, you know, the, the <laughs> turn the key, press the ignition and, you know, maybe play a little bit with the throttle. Now, you've been working almost 20, you worked 20 years uh, working on electronic control systems uh, in, in the automobile. I've always wanted to know the start stop capability relatively new, right? You stop at a red light, the engine cuts off, then instantly turns on. Are we going to see more innovation like that? And who was responsible? Do you know who came up with that? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure who did the first auto start stop systems. Most of them were implemented in, in Europe uh, by a number of European manufacturers. Um, Volkswagen, BMW uh, Audi, were some of the yeah. first ones. Mm -hmm. um, and Are we going to see more stuff like that? Though? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they're, they're very cost effective uh, solutions that give you, you know, two, three, four percent more fuel economy, especially in city driving. Uh, and so it, they don't, it doesn't cost much and manufacturers will use that to get, improve their fuel economy in a way that isn't going to add a lot to the sticker price of the car. Sam, when you were analyzing which uh, companies were most adept at making a, a market out of autonomous driving vehicles. Did you get a sense of what the true self-driving car would look like, the one that actually would be sold, that we'd end up seeing possibly in the next couple of years? Um, I think uh, a good hint of the direction we're going to see is cars like the Chevrolet Bolt EV. Um, you know, when GM was designing that car, they specifically factored in mobility services, ride hailing services, as one of the potential use cases for that car, which is why it has the form factor it does. It's a relatively short wheelbase. It's a little bit taller. It's very easy to get in and out of. It's actually got a lot of room for, for four or five adults, uh, even in the back seat. Uh, so they, they designed it for that kind of application, and now it's the, their primary platform that they're using to develop self-driving technology and what they're going to planning to deploy with Lyft in the next few years. Well, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. That was Sam Abu El Samad. Abu El Samad. Yeah. You pronounce it, please. Abu El Samad. Abu El Samad. Thank you. Uh, senior analyst of mobility at Navigant Research joins us here at the New York Auto Show at the G uh, Javits Center, uh, talking about autonomous cars and how Ford and GM have a leg up on the Teslas and the Googles of the world, despite all the hype. This is Bloomberg. more about Puerto Rico, in particular a new study that shows that bondholder losses may be substantially bigger than the current ratings suggest. Michelle Kasky is back with us. Michelle, we are so happy to have you back. She's a Puerto Rico reporter uh, for Bloomberg News and she joins us from our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Uh, Michelle, can you talk a little bit about why bondholders might be in for bigger losses than Puerto Rico ratings currently suggest? 
Well, they, they might be in for bigger losses just because of, there's so much uncertainty surrounding this, according to uh, municipal market advisors um, and analytics. And they, you know, their, their whole theory is, look, you know, everything is still so up in the air. And how do we really even know um, that you can get what Moody's is estimating um, that you could get, which would be the, on the lower end of 35 to 65 cents on the dollar? Right. Um, this uh, this report that's challenging the ratings is coming uh, from uh, Matt, right? Matt Fabian, who's Matt a partner Fabian. at Concord, mm-hmm. Massachusetts-based municipal market analytics. He was talking in a note uh, that was distributed uh, on Tuesday. I find it interesting that... Frankly, there are even ratings at a time when there is so much ambiguity. I mean, is there anything that you can kind of anchor your estimates on at this point? Well, Fabian doesn't even anchor his estimates on anything. He comes out and he says, look, you know, we're not even going to um, speculate on um, a range because it's just there's what what could happen in the future is just so unknown. And he also talks about how it's ultimately what will need to happen is something that we haven't seen yet, which would be um, whether the federal government gets involved in some sort of way more than they have already. Not not in the sense of writing out a check, but um, creating some sort of super bond or where the IRS would you maybe collect Puerto Rico's um, taxes or creating something like the New York um, New York uh, Municipal Water, what, what they did in, in terms of a, a really um, complex uh, security structure. So again, and these are all speculations, but because of that, um, th- that's why many people are just reluctant to really kind of put a, a gauge on this. And so zooming out, I mean, there's $70 billion of Puerto Rico debt outstanding. A lot of it is uh, held by hedge funds who came in late to the game as speculators buying the bonds at a discount. But a lot of it is still held by mutual funds. I mean, how big could the losses be at this point for retail investors who have uh, money in some of these funds? Well, there. I mean, they are going to have to. T- there is going to be some sort of a loss. Right now, the the most actively traded Puerto Rico GO trades at uh, today is trading trading at uh, sixty six uh, six uh, sixty five cents on the dollar. And that's down from. Uh, I'm just going to look. Well, up. How, how much is that it, down? When it first sold, it sold at. Um, Let's see here. It sold. It was in the ninety. It was in the ninety-three, ninety-four wow. cents on the dollar. So it sold at. It sold at a discount. Initially. Right, but that was right. It sold at a discount initially. Yeah, yeah. But you're talking about a bond that has traded down pretty dramatically mm-hmm. uh, after being sold in 2014. So we're talking, uh, you know, about three years later, it's mm-hmm. lost uh, about a third of its value, and those those uh, those losses are going to be felt across the board. So what are the deadlines coming up to give people a better sense of what to expect with respect to losses? I mean, I know that the governor has managed to solidify uh, some kind of deal with some bondholders. What negotiations lie ahead? Well, right. Actually, this day, as we speak, um, there are GEO and, and COFINA, sales tax bondholders and, and others, um, talking today. Um, how how far that will progress, where they'll get, we'll, we'll see. Um, some people are doubtful that they'll really be able to uh, hammer out an, an actual an agreement uh, before May 1st, which is when a, um, a legal stay that sort of shields and protects Puerto Rico from from litigation, that, that will end. And uh, and then the any lawsuits that are currently in the works will um, be able to move forward, and um, and and we'll see what happens after May one. 
Who are the main uh, firms that are leading the charge on behalf of the creditors to negotiate with Puerto Rico right now? You mean the main the main investors? I mean Franklin. Yes, and, correct. Yeah, Franklin uh, Templeton and Oppenheimer are two of the biggest uh, mutual funds out there um, holding Puerto Rico debt, and then there's just a whole slate of hedge funds out there as well um, that that hold the debt. So, but pretty much, I mean Franklin and and Oppenheimer are the ones that that bought in. Um, at full price, so they're they're right. they're, so they're, yeah. they're on the hook for a lot of the losses, and they hold a lot of different types of Puerto Rico debt. So, well, it's a messy situation. I'm sure we'll have you back to talk more about what's going on, Michelle Kasky. Thank you so much for joining us, Michelle Kasky is Puerto Rico reporter for Bloomberg News, talking about the situation. We're talking seventy billion dollars of debt spread across mutual funds, hedge funds. A new governor came into place. The Congress did allow a fiscal control board to get in. Uh, to oversee the finances of Puerto Rico, and yet they signed off on a bill recently on a budget that would materially reduce the potential recoveries for bondholders. There's a lot at stake. A lot of people are watching. Michelle, we really appreciate you joining us. Yesterday, President Trump uh, was interviewed, or I should say, the Wall Street Journal published an article in which President Trump was interviewed saying that, I think our dollar is getting too strong, and partially that's my fault because people have confidence in me. Well, the dollar plunged major move. Uh, and uh, people were wondering what this means for the path ahead. To break this down, I want to bring in Bob Cinch, global strategist at Amherst Pierpont Securities. Uh, Bob, was the fall of the dollar yesterday in response to President Trump's comments, or has the decline in the greenback come from something else? You know, Lisa, I think it's uh, it's pretty fundamentally driven. Look, we've had a, uh, a pretty good rally in the bond market uh, over the last week or so. And uh, as we look at it, the movements in the dollar index, uh, particularly against major currencies, uh, is really very consistent with the interest rate differential between the U.S. Uh, and those same countries. So, you know, I think that, you know, if you look at the dollar move, I'd say 80 percent or, or more has been related to changing interest rates and interest rate differentials. And a very small part of it was uh, was really in response to the president's comments. I mean, it, it, the dollar took about a three-quarter quarters of a percent hit um, on the initial Which is a big deal for the dollar. But that's, that's a big deal for the dollar. Well, I mean, yes, I guess, in a, in a short period of time. But it's regained two-thirds of that um, this morning. So basically the dollar's down, dollar index is down about a quarter of a percent from where it was before those comments were, uh, were published. Bob, if you could just speak a little bit more about currencies, but in this case, uh, the Japanese yen and the euro, as well as falling uh, 10-year U.S. Treasury yields, doesn't that send a non-inflationary kind of risk-off signal? You know, it definitely uh, sends a risk-off signal. We've seen that in uh, in movement into the yen, which uh, which you know that that risk-off movement into the yen persists despite the fact that Japan has you know huge uh, huge deficits and uh, uh, and their own long-term problems. But but certainly, uh, I think we had an interesting test this morning. Uh, if you look at a, a 200-day moving average, this is one of those that the uh, the technical guys will look at for sort of trend movements. Uh, 108.75 is dollar yen's 200-day moving average. We went down and tested that, haven't closed or, or gotten below it. So I think 
that's an important one to watch in terms of risk aversion and this movement in, in dollar-yen. But I think in general, um, again, I think it's, it's been this retreat in interest rates, uh, you know, 10-year yields, you know, down a good 15 basis points in the last week. And I think that's been the key driver uh, of the of the weaker dollar, and particularly dollar yen, which is which is sensitive to to ten year interest rate differentials. So, um, again, I think a lot of it's going to depend on what happens to to rates from here, and uh, you know, and I think the dollar will respond accordingly. Do you think that ten year Treasury yield will continue to fall? Doesn't seem to be, but it's not supposed to be doing that at, at the moment, right? And bank lending also in the United States appear to be falling. Yeah, on the bank lending side, I think a lot of that is companies that are just very liquid, um, and obviously capital spending has not been a uh, has not been robust, and so the demand and need for capital, frankly, um, isn't all that great. In, in terms of yield, certainly the market got caught off sides after the uh, March FOMC meeting. I think a lot of people were short bonds, but I think the one thing that is sort of creeping into market sensitivity is that this little bubble of inflation that everyone was focused on, uh, I think is fading pretty quickly. Um, obviously, when you look at year-over-year inflation numbers, it looks like February, um, for many countries, will have been the peak, uh, and that's when oil prices and, and gasoline prices were up the most on a year-on-year basis. Uh, but you look at, at China, inflation has suddenly retreated to below 1% year-over-year from over 2 the eurozone, the headline CPI touched 2% for a month and is now retreating. Their core number is only 0.7. So I think after a, a focus early in the year that maybe inflation is picking up around the world and, and maybe yield levels will be picking up, I think we are seeing this turn globally um, that inflation pressures are cooling a little bit. And with a market that was heavily short U.S. Uh, treasuries, there's been a pretty painful short covering rally, I think, in that market. You know, Bob, uh, just going back to the dollar, because I, I really was struck by President Trump's comments, especially ahead of a Treasury uh, report that we're expecting that should address uh, some of the same issues. I mean, can you just put into perspective how unusual it is for a standing president to comment about the strength of uh, the dollar, especially in a year where it has declined uh, and at a time when in in recent very recent history a strong dollar was viewed as a positive and a sign of strength uh, of the economy or so at least uh, officials said yeah you got me um, you know I mean, like I'm just I'm just I'm struggling to understand the strategy here <laughs> yeah well I think that's the problem is if you're referring to it as a strategy look I think the president is, um, uh, you know, speaks his mind, um, you know, is, is not afraid to make off-the-cuff comments. I think this was in the, the same category as, um, you know, I'd like the dollar to be a little weaker. I'd li- I like low interest rates. I like meatloaf. I mean, I, I just think this was a, a dialogue, and, and these things were on his mind. Obviously, the whole issue of, of China, you know, China does not qualify. Um, as a currency manipulator under the Treasury's uh, guidelines. So it was going to be extremely difficult to name them a currency manipulator. So now I think, you know, the, the trade-off is, well, we weren't going to name them a manipulator in this way. Maybe they'll help us with North Korea. It's a, it's a good reversal. It sells reasonably well. But I think these topics, you know, talking to the, uh, to the Wall Street Journal, these topics were front and center. And I think he right. made some comments that, uh, you know, he likes a weaker dollar, you know, but I don't, I don't think there's a strategy here. I think it was just a dialogue, a conversation, and one of those things that happened to come up. 
Well, uh, is there anything tangible that President Trump or his administration would do or could do to uh, lower the value of the dollar that seems feasible in the near term? Well, you know, I think that one of the factors that's been driving the dollar has been an expectation of a change in the policy mix. And what I mean by that is less reliance on monetary policy, more reliance on fiscal policy in terms of, of stimulus for the economy. And certainly history and, and, and theory would suggest that a combination of a stimulative fiscal policy and a tighter monetary policy uh, is one that's very supportive of a currency. So. I think to the extent that we don't see the follow-through on tax reform and things like that, a result of that could be a weaker dollar. But I don't think there's a real objective uh, in terms of a currency. You know, you know, administrations, policymakers talk a lot about currencies, but you don't really see a lot of action on a consistent basis where the currency is really the objective of policy. I mean, you, you, you may see that in, in Hong Kong and, and Saudi Arabia, where they're linked to the dollar. But most, most countries are trying to generate domestic growth, domestic jobs, tame inflation, keep inflation from being too low. The dollar or, or their currency is, is a way of getting to those objectives, right. but not the objectives themselves. Thanks very much. Uh, Bob Sinch is a global strategist, Amherst Pierpont Securities. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.